Welcome to the Life Support Podcast, where we share stories about being a doctor to build community and to heal each other, even when what ails us is incurable. My name is Paul Kim, and I just finished my first year of medical school. Already I have witnessed how medical school and medical practice have just as much potential to drain our spirits as to offer fulfillment and meaning. I hope my conversation with Dr. Luck today will help support you in living well your current phase of becoming a physician. I guess it makes sense that physicians think they're healers. In some ways, I've never thought myself of myself as a healer. Really? I have been involved in the healing arts, but I always have thought myself as a warrior, not a healer, not a healer. Oh. And I- intrigued by that. It may come out of my background, family history, but also particularly where I was at medical school at the time that it was in South Africa during apartheid and the whole anti-apartheid demonstrations that, you know, the late 80s when I was mid to late 80s that I was in medical school I always felt like getting equitable health care for everybody was a battle or if one was involved in that battle and I'm very aware of battle metaphors and how we use them and I'm quite anti the metaphors of war and struggle but at times bringing good health care to everyone feels like a battle and those of us in engaged in that feels to me really is a fierce practice of presence. And for me, that's what mindfulness is as well. Mindfulness is not a soft practice. It is a fierce practice of presence. It is one that demands we come up against that threshold of this moment and stepping into the next again and again and again and make a choice and potentially an ethical choice in every moment of how we act, how we show up, what choices we make. Do we have a sense of our embodied values and presence and what we're stepping into and how we step into that with a sense of this is a fierce declaration of who I am and what I'm willing to do in this moment. And for me, that is the practice of the warrior. It is also the practice of the the teacher and the leader. If you perhaps read Angelis Ariane this summer, might be a good book for you to look at and read. He was a medical anthropologist and has a book called The Fourfold Way. And she takes indigenous knowledge of all the four elements and And if you're interested in history of medicine around the humors and the way we look at these interrelated ways, but it is the way of the healer, the warrior, the teacher, and the the visionary. But I actually think medical practice is a practice really of being the warrior. That healing practice is a fierce practice of showing up for ourselves and for our patients and for our lives in a way that really demands fierce presence. That metaphor of the warrior was one that I have struggled to contextualize in the right way, because I think there's a lot of narratives around what it means to look like or be a warrior. And I think, oddly enough, the metaphor that I kind of settled on eventually as one that seemed to fit was of the combat medic, of someone who is definitely in places of conflict, is in places of violence and yet is trying to be a force to bring healing to those types of wounds that people receive. And that, yeah, there, it still requires a level of fierceness and courage because there is a risk in entering these tense or violent places that we too could receive injuries or at least have old wounds opened up again. I found it curious that we both kind of have a, at least somewhat similar metaphor for this. 
So relating to being a warrior, we certainly always step into places of conflict and change and uncertainty. For me, being a warrior, you know, we have so much going on in our world around war and around violence and around harm to one another. And I am not a warrior that condones any of that or wants to be part of that. For me, the metaphor of warrior is just an internal space of fierceness of being willing to step into the fire and step into the conflict and in that potentially be a space of calm and of pause and of just waiting again. And that the nature of the warrior is not to keep the conflict going, but the nature of the warrior is one that is willing to step into the conflict and to expand the space so that there are greater choices about what can be done with that. And I think that's what I want to add about, I don't want it to be felt like I am willing to go to war. Metaphorically, I'm willing to enter into these conflicts, but because my background and my transgenerational trauma of my parents being involved in World War II and the impact it had on them and families and people around them from both sides of that war still lives through me to this day that I am unwilling to be associated with war per se, even though I understand that my nature has been that I have definitely stoked conflict in many places. Willingly and unwillingly. And so this mindfulness practice not only helps us in our medical lives and in our medical worlds and with patients and with with how to work with those relationships and with our colleagues and the teams that we're constantly working with, but it also helps us in our personal lives and in in the greater social realm and about the choices that we are willing to make that have us facing into the headwinds. We're really looking at those rather than turning away. And so mindfulness practice means fiercely showing up for this next edge of our lives with our whole kind of engaged being. I agree with everything you said. And I guess also what strikes me, and I think you've alluded to this before and saying mindfulness is one way. It's not the way, but it's a one way that people can do this. And the engineer part of me really wants there to be some sort of very crisp and clear answer of, oh, just do this, then this will happen and everything will be fine. But, you know, I guess, you know, as you've said, part of mindfulness practice is so unique to each person and unique to their understanding and their story and their family history and you know, their context, which for me is both amazingly beautiful to say how many different ways there are to be in the world and also wildly frustrating because I'm, ah, well, then how do we figure out how to do this? You just start. You have to put one step in front of the other. The thing is, people always want to get to year 10. (laughs) I can remember asking one of my mentors going to a lecture of hers like six months after I'd started doing some studying with her going, Oh my God, how do I learn all this stuff? She says, listen, this has been 11 years of me practicing. Cool down. You're just going to, I'm like, okay, 11 years before I can feel some comfort. The thing is, you just get on the road and eventually you might look behind you. We often, we, we fail to stop and look behind us and go, wow, look at how far I've come. We only think from a scarcity perspective and go, look how far I still need to go. But it's really a value sometimes just to stop and think about all the things 
that have come together that have enabled you to get to this place now. And it's enabled you to get to this place now, which means you can still do that next step. But it also means that at least five minutes a day, if you want to start on with meditation practice, is just put aside five minutes a day and just start and make it a regular practice and then see what happens. Sticking with the metaphor a little bit, what do you see as the opposing forces, so to say, that the warrior comes up against in this battle to bring equitable healing? Oh, the biggest one for me is my own hubris. <laughs> this is a knowing laugh. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's whatever we set in opposition to ourselves, right? And so that is the biggest obstacle is what we think we're stepping into and being open to that dissolving into whatever it actually is. So I don't know, it, it's, as you know, very contextual, very specific mm. within medical practice. It can be really complex and difficult given whatever we're being faced with the patients, with the families, with the environment, it can be very specific and complex, but often it's just our own hubris in terms of not being willing to listen, not being willing to take some of the time to just figure out what is most important to the patient, to their lives, to their families, to, to step away from, yes, of course, there's an algorithm of what may well be needed, particular way of practice that is the way that needs to be in this very moment, but it may clash with what is needed for this particular context or this particular person. So are we willing to put some of that aside and just listen to what is the most important for this person in this moment? What are the weapons or tactics, so to say, that you use to try and get at this opposing force of our own hubris? I mean, for me, it, it really is part of mindfulness practice which a continued practice helps me just recognize it. So just the continued place of building awareness and building recognition. And with that is just humor. I'm like, oh, here we are again. You know, that knowing laughter that you had is like, oh yeah, I recognize that. You know, here I've set up this whole big structure and it's just, oh my God, there we go again. Here's this habit. Here's this way of being. And so it's the practice of awareness and recognition, having humor, and then just, I guess, the capacity for just for self-compassion for just being able to forgive ourselves again and again and again of how we need this moment to be completely different to how we find it to be. Because we're always wanting to have, you know, everything in life is fabulous, unless it's not the way I want it to be. <laughs> so I can manage everything. Of course I can, except when it's not the way I want it. And so it's this constant, and there's the kind of stress and tension we put ourselves under of necessary expectation, necessary planning, necessary structure that we have to put in our, we have to live in this complex world. We have to work in this complex world. We have to have an understanding of all the various tools and technologies and advances we have at hand to make everybody's life easier, including ourselves and including our patients. But there's this constant push in terms of that we can fix, we can change, we can be everything, we can be different, we can be happy, whatever it is in the next moment. 
What really struck me about what you said was how self-compassion is one of those really key pieces, because as much as there is some humor in seeing ourselves make the same mistakes over and over again and being like, uh, yes, this is a part of who I am. I also have experienced that to sometimes be really crushing of being like, I do this thing and it is, you know, it negatively impacts myself and people that I care about, whether they be, you know, people in a healthcare setting or relationships I have in my personal life. And sometimes saying, you know, I just don't know how to change this. And I feel like this is going to be here forever. And that that's the nightmare, honestly. So that's a perfect moment when we just get stuck, where we can feel like for whatever reason, we cannot force ourselves into a different way of being either now or in the future. And there's the tension. I, after many years, have come to recognize that I hold this tension in my body. When my body feels tense in a certain way that I feel like it feels like it wants to force me physically into a different future. And I can feel that and kind of release and, and breathe into it and go, okay, I, I'm trying to force a different reality that I can feel as an embodied sense. And I can recognize that and just breathe into it and relax and go, oh, here that is. Here this feeling is. This is okay. This is just the way it is. And a sense of kindness and care for it kind of builds a spaciousness for me around this kind of embodied feeling that just allows a pause and just allows a settle and a recognition of the potential struggle in this moment for it to be different. And just that often gives a little space of, ah, here we are. There's nothing to do. There's nothing in this moment that can shift. Yet that in itself brings a physical shift that sometimes releases a new thought. It's, it's like you're banging your head against the wall trying to get that answer that's not coming or the, the word that's on the tip of your tongue. And how often when you look a different way or do something else or start on a new task, it kind of floats out sideways. And it's like, ah, oh, there it is. And so that's the moment of just stopping, releasing the force of needing to change or be different or feel different. That just allows a greater spaciousness for a different way of being to kind of creep in there that is spacious and more generous. And so my response, you know, if we go back to your initial question of what are the ways or the tools of, of the warrior, for me, it's generosity and care. Because the generosity to self and to others opens a space that allows more possibility to be here. When we're not generous to ourselves or generous to others, when we don't offer a possibility of something different to emerge, then it's only ever the way we expect it, only ever the way our bias informs us to be, only the way the conversation gets closed down. And when we open up for the unknown, for the uncertainty, for the generosity of what may be possible, we can be surprised in every moment. Just as you were saying these things, I just think of so many points in my life, just educationally speaking, where that was so much not the message that we were given. At least for me, to get into medical school, you know, you have to have these scores. You have to have the prerequisites. You have to have the grades. You have to have the resume. <clears throat> the resume. 
And even when you get here, thank the Lord that stuff is pass fail now, because I would have gone absolutely nuts this year if it hadn't. But that does give us some space. But eventually, we're going to get to the point where you're going to be graded on things. And if you don't perform to a certain standard, then you're going to be penalized for that. In what ways do you find it helpful to teach people how to counteract this thinking, which has been so ingrained in us from day one, educationally, so to say? So I think there's a variety of things at play here and, and um, the structural nature of um, the kind of systemic things we inhabit are there and will rule our lives to some degree. Some of them are also just, we think that they say something about us. And in fact, it's sometimes just lucky. It's lucky that your application was the one out of 10 that got read by the application committee. It was lucky that for some reason, something caught somebody's attention. And so we kind of think that when we achieve things, it's everything to do with us. And when we fail, it's everything to do with us. Mm. And sometimes, yes, it is our work. It is our hard work. It is our achievement. But sometimes it just has nothing to say about who we, because we get so tight about this says something about who I am. This says something about me as a valued person rather than this is just what happened today. And today tick this box and therefore I got into this queue rather than today I didn't tick this box and therefore I'm on a different journey and a different pathway. And we see failure as something absolutely terrible about me today rather than potentially that's another door for me to walk through and think about how my life unfolds in a different way. We have such fear of failing or not ticking those boxes because the competitive zero-sum total nature, how this extreme capitalist system that we find ourselves, you know, very individualized system, wants us to believe that it's all about me rather than some of it is just the way today happened the way I got met in this moment and it just didn't work. And therefore tomorrow is another opportunity to meet. It's, it's the story you've told me about how you got to be here. You wanted to do a particular thing. You wanted to do humanities. You did humanities through the engineering and looked at how we create things in a very particular structured way that tells us about how we are human. And that didn't work with your concept of what healing meant. So you then looked at how we treat one another within an environment where people are deigned as not capable of the, the way that society demands of them functioning and therefore they work in a different way. And out of that, you've made some choices about, okay, maybe that does mean I'm going on this journey of, of what healership means for me. But that was not a straight line. That was, you know, you didn't go from A to B. In fact, on the way you found C. And so we're so anxious about what if I fail? What if I fall off this particular road rather than, well, maybe this is not the road that I need to be walking. Something that I'm wondering about is, would you mind speaking a little bit to your own experience of trying to grapple with these things that we've been talking about? I'm trying to think what would be helpful for your listeners. There is no one way of doing it, because I'm trying to think, I have never been this extreme scientific clinician. 
And my path has always been as a clinician, never as a scientist. I mean, I went to medical school at 17, so I never did all these huge science requisites that you'd have to do these days. I was always very much a clinician. I didn't do any humanities before. I did a course of, um, I think we had medical anthropology in our first semester of year one. And second semester, we, we did biology, we did some chemistry, Year two was a whole year of anatomy. And so I remember doing anatomy and physiology. That was our, our second year program. And then we did all the other you know, microbiology and pathology and all of that. But I actually failed my third year of medical school. And these things are very important. I want to at some point get to the things that help us belong is connection with others. And so if you're ever feeling alone and it's the hardest time to reach out, that actually the most important thing is however we do it is to reach out to somebody. That is, I think, the big underlying message for me and some of the things that I've learned along the way. Because in that year where, or even just the short time before, I didn't so much fail my year as chose not to rewrite subjects so that I then repeated a year, but actually went through quite a bit of existential crisis, um, mental health crisis. I spent too much, this warrior energy had me spend spend too much time working in in South Africa at the time in in the townships. And I was involved with a medical student group that was working in the townships and too involved with politics. and, And so studies was not at the top of the list. And probably I was also too young. You know, some of these things are to do with maturity. When one steps into struggles and difficulties, I was too continents away from any family members in a country that I had not grown up in with struggles that were not really my own, which is another developing place that I'm learning in the U.S. to be in another country that's not my own with struggles that are not my own and how to respond wisely and with humility to that. I think that's something that I have learned along the way, which really came in some ways to a head when I was in my third year of medical school, trying to collate these places of social struggle, personal struggle, and academic struggle. And I think many of us within medical school face potentially these three kind of big themes going on. What am I doing with my social life? What am I doing with my family? With the with things happening around me, how am I involved in that? What am I doing with my academic work? How much time does that take up? How do I be involved with that? And how am I involved with my own personal development as a young person as I come into contact with all these changing forces around me and my own developing identity, I think. This is a time where all of these three can really come a, a big struggle. And for me, that ended up that I had to just take another year. And the difficulty of it was, and here's how stories work. I've, lo- I've listened, I've thought about this memory a lot and wondered if this is my memory of it because I felt excluded or this is how it really happened. But I felt shunned by the class that I moved out of into the next class. These days, knowing a lot more about narratives and stories and teaching medical humanities and how we make meaning and examining my own memories, I'm not sure of that meaning-making process anymore. But I think what I've learned from that is these three elements that I've been talking about and, and that these are the ones that really call to us at this time and how we make 
sense of them and which we give a, a lot of energy to. And I, and I see a lot of the students that I mentor and speak with as they go through medical school, they're struggling with these three elements. What am, what's happening in my academic world? How is that making meaning making within the broader societal issues that we are being faced with at whatever level? And, and how does my personal being relate to that? And it's worth taking time with that and not just seeing that as a stressor or something that's taking up too much time or that these things shouldn't be stressing us. I think this is the perfect time where, where these questions arise and, and where these developmental issues and and they will stay with you i'm now i was 56 the other day so they will stay with you for for decades these questions i'm still busy with them how do these things interrelate and where do we put energy coming out of that year what i did was then actually continue spending some time of energy on my, on academics i of course did enough just to get through and I was happy to pass at the end of my sixth year for us, but also continued to put a lot of energy into the whole social engagement that I was part of then. And that has been a thread for me throughout my career, really trying to think about what is this place of medicine for me? I haven't done a traditional residency in anything really out of the kind of English-based system one does a a generalist training for quite a few years, which I guess these days might equate to being kind of a hospitalist that works one's way through the various disciplines. And I did that for quite a few years, wondering if I was going to do OBGYN or do public health or do all sorts of things. And eventually, because of the circumstances and how our family moved, ended up working in family practice for many years, mostly part-time while I was raising young children. But eventually came to another crisis point where I wasn't involved in medicine in a way for me that engaged with my patients enough that thought about illness and ill health and how we got there on a greater society kind of level, which I was really more interested in. I, I really wanted to know, why are you getting ill as a particular patient? And, or why are you experiencing illness in this way? Rather than just, hey, doc, I have a flu. Can you script me some antibiotics, which I... I'm already going to have a conversation about why we're we having the antibiotics for the flu. And so I took some time out. And that's really when I became involved in, in mind-body medicine and started a whole variety of things looking at integrated approaches to mind-body health. That's when I started doing some training in mindfulness. I wanted to do some medical psychotherapy and went to learn a counseling course. I did a lay counseling course through our hospice at the time and hadn't really been exposed to hospice and palliative care and got co-opted by them back into being a physician. And that, to your point, was the one place where I actually felt this collaborative space of being able to spend time thinking about the bigger picture of not just the biological impact of health and illness and wellness, but also the whole psychosocial, spiritual, contextual, cultural nature of illness, it's, uh, which one has to do in some ways throughout medicine, but really was at the time when I was starting work in that more than 20 years ago was really held within the world of palliative medicine in some ways. So for me, that was a way back into medical practice for me. 
And so I went back into medical practice. I was medical director of a hospice for a while and then became team leader for a pediatric palliative care team because there was no pediatric palliative care physician in our, in our city. And in some ways, my medical career has always followed in terms of what needs doing now, which is in some ways a mindfulness practice. It's a question what's needed now. And I've been fortunate in terms of where I've lived, the kind of era I've come out of, and that I've always just been able to learn some skills. Now, I haven't done a palliative care specialty, but I did a master's degree in palliative medicine that allowed me to have special skills to actually do the medical practice in a place where there were very, very few palliative care physicians at the time. Even now, there aren't a lot of trained palliative care physicians in South Africa and there were there wasn't a pediatric palliative care training so I kind of just knew the palliative care work and learned the pediatrics from the pediatricians that I was working with and then the next journey was I moved countries again and decided I needed to learn more about narrative medicine so I did a master's in the medical humanities which allows me to work here because I'm not clinically licensed within academic and educational medicine so for me, there might be a door that closes, but that doesn't mean it's the end of your journey. It just means you have to look around for the next door that opens. And that may mean learning some comfort with discomfort for a while. And that's also a good kind of mindfulness practice is how to just be with what's here, with the discomfort and the dissonance of what is here and look around and wait for a while until some wisdom that may arise that says, potentially, this is the next path. This is the next thing to become in, involved in. There's a short poem or saying from the Tao that goes something like, do you have the patience to wait until the mud settles and the water is clear? Can you be still until the right action arises by itself? Right? When we're just scrabbling and kicking up all the dirt, we can't see and there's no clarity. Mm -hmm. So we actually need a little stillness and to be with the discomfort and allow it to settle. And then perhaps there's greater clarity on what our next step may be. I do want to get to those questions. How do we create the space or the support to help each other belong in this profession that we are entering? Yeah, I was looking at one of your questions and, and I made this note about belonging. Describe what form of healing you wish to bring into the world. And I think for me, that is that we all have a sense of belonging and a sense of being cared for. At some level, because isolation begets greater isolation, I've had an interest in researching shame and the experience of shame within medical education and working with mindfulness practice to counteract that. And part of that is the place of compassion and self-compassion. But if we feel less than if we feel othered, if we feel that for whatever reason, in this moment, we're not good enough, we tend to turn away and isolate ourselves because that's just the nature of that particular experience. So reaching out means that I have to tell another person that I'm feeling less than, which makes me feel even less than less than, right? So there's this really difficult paradox in feeling isolated and alone. And what I'd like to tell anybody who's listening to this is that this is a very human experience, that this is something that we know, we know from our own experience, I know from my experience in times of greatest isolation, 
and despair. And I know from the research of this that we all experience this. We all go through this. We, this is a human thing. And therefore, just reaching out and saying to one other person, hey, I'm really struggling. I need some help. Can you help me? Or can you help me find help? Or picking up the phone or calling any one of the, the phone lines that this does not say anything about me and who I am. This says I am experiencing something very human, very common, very universal. And with a medical education, very common, that we feel isolated, that we feel not good enough, that we feel struggle and despair. And even just reaching out to one other student or one other faculty or one other, whoever it is that you feel is the person you can say, hey, I'm really struggling. That sense of connection and belonging uh, that can, in that moment, you're not feeling belonging, but you feel some connection. And we often talk about the, the stress reactive system, right? We have all the stressors, we feel stressed, we have the adrenaline, we have the whole sympathetic system going, but we rarely speak about the connection system, which is the one that we all have the capacity to connect. The capacity in that moment when we connect, we have um, oxytocin is our connection hormone. And it's not a particularly female hormone, it's a connecting hormone. We all have it. And in that moment when we reach out to connect, that actually we, we activate a, set, a system that we're now starting to call the tend and befriend system. So we have the stress reactivity. We need to do this tend and befriend that I'm tending and befriending myself, but I'm doing it sometimes by reaching out to another person and saying, hey, I need some help. Or even just reaching out back to myself and going, wow, this is really hard. You're needing a little bit of care in this moment. And so that capacity to tend and befriend oneself and others, to connect with another person and or hopefully a group of others that allows us to collaborate, which helps us belong once again back to this human capacity with one another. And for me, that's something we don't spend enough time on. We don't spend enough time on. It's really, yes, competition is important. Yes, getting ahead is important. Yes, getting through medical school is important. I'm not, nothing I'm saying means that you should <laughs> not go and study when you've listened, when you stop listening to this, you should go and get your work done. <laughs> you know, there's the both and but we forget it's we really need to tend and befriend and we need to kind of have this connection and collaboration because human beings didn't get ahead because they were in constant competition with one another. We would have all annihilated one another if competition, the Darwinian competition that they say is what had us survive. It wouldn't have been so. We got ahead because of the Darwinian ethos of collaboration and working together and that we actually can collaborate with one another to build things together. That's how we've survived for so long as human beings. Even as we try and destroy one another, we continue to come back again and collaborate and work together and say, okay, let's build, let's see how we can have this sense of belonging. 
Yeah, again, just thank you so much for sharing this such a true experience. I mean, even for myself, and I think it's pretty easy to assume other people, yeah, that struggle of belonging and the, as you say, the kind of response to try and get out of that isolation of feeling not enough is somewhat ironically in a sad kind of way is to have the courage to reach out believing that you are enough that someone else is willing to connect with that and I think in that I definitely hear the echoes of what you said earlier of this fierceness of believing against all odds sometimes that we are worthy and we are enough and to risk believing in that to reach out to someone or to you know offer that type of space to someone else that's just this is very beautiful it takes huge courage, right? The courage comes from the French word courage, right? Which I'm sure has got a Latin root. And we always think the biggest thing around courage is the image of the lion, right? So the heart is an image of fierceness, of connection. And we always think so mindfulness is translated often as mindfulness is of the mind, of the cognitive capacities. But it also is translated as heartfulness. And so that we cannot be this brain and this mind without a full bodied heart connection as well. And so even within medical school, we need a whole bodied engagement with our work. My husband and I follow David White. He asked this question about exhaustion. Speak to me about exhaustion. And so when we speak about exhaustion, we always think the antidote to exhaustion. What would you say the antidote to exhaustion is? Yes. Rest, yeah? That feels like, of course, I'm exhausted. Let me rest. But our experience is often when we rest, we just feel more exhausted, right? At times, we just feel more tired because the pace of our life, we just cannot rest from the years of the pace of our life in some ways. And so often the antidote to exhaustion is wholeheartedness, is wholehearted engagement. We're often exhausted because we're approaching things in a way that is tiring and that really stresses and strains us. And so it's worth just stopping and wondering about how am I engaging with whatever that is causing such deep exhaustion in a way that has me feel curious and engaged and interested again. And so it may just be the way that we're engaging with something, potentially. Sometimes it's just too much and it's overwhelming but there may be some place to think about is there a different way of engaging with this that would be helpful would taking a five minute walk outside into the sunshine every hour or so give me a bit of a boost that helps me re-engage then it's not just doing the same old thing in exactly the same way to get new results but it's <laughs> can i take a little perspective shift and think about it a little bit different is there something just a little shift that might help me re-engage in a way that won't feel so tiring i really appreciate you said that because i mean that exact question of exhaustion and what is the antidote to exhaustion is more or less the question i've been wrestling with this summer of yes first year was definitively exhausting i have no doubt about that but also realizing over the past few weeks of i've been sleeping in every day i've had you know plenty of time to do you know whatever i want or even do nothing at all and yet you're right you know i still feel this like exhaustive weight so i i'll have to think about what you said in terms of you know how do we go about things in a more wholehearted way instead of i guess the rough equivalent would be just trying to muscle our way through through a day right. 
I have to put a plug in for some mindfulness meditation. I find for me that it's not an understatement to say that mindfulness saved my life, that it had me re-look at my engagement with my life and how I did that. And over time has had me realign to my work, to my being, to all my relationships, including with my family and my children that I'm not sure I could have done in the, in the same way. Did I not have a practice that has me to sit and learn to be with myself and kind of be with what arises in a way that is spacious and filled with compassion. And so if you're struggling, just even a two-minute, five-minute practice a day, just pause, tune into to your breath and to your breathing. It's always helpful to get coaching and get instructions and all of that, but even just a space for just some pause, just some grounding, just some recentering. And then if something comes up, if you're a journaler, like out of that, you might have thoughts. Every Whenever I sit, often if I'm really struggling, I know I, I actually need to meditate for at least know half an hour 45 minutes a day and out of that comes so many more creative thoughts than if I would just actually keep working on it it's doing something completely different stopping it re-shifting it but actually doing a pause practice or mindfulness practice or just a stillness practice helps re-center us again in a way that just doing more won't necessarily help do you have any other specific recommendations for our listeners if they should be interested in looking into mindfulness practice? So if they are part of the university here at the University of Rochester, all the students are able to, through the Mindful University, if you just Google U of R Mindful University, they have four-week mindfulness classes through Karu Mindfulness. So Karu Mindfulness is a kind of a short mindfulness practice that's kind of taken out of the, the longer eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction programs that's been developed specifically for young people. And so that's offered, I, when you look at their site, there's lunchtime sessions, there's all sorts of other drop-in sessions that they have. So if they're interested that that's one place. I have a selective for second-year students that's now running starting in August, <laughs> where we're doing the medical humanities mindfulness session. There is through the wellness center at the university, we teach an eight week mindfulness evening MBSR mindfulness-based stress reduction program that is often open to medical students and they're very welcome to email me to if they're wanting to find out about joining those. This is a conversation that I'm wanting to have with some students about how do we offer some more of this and have students more involved in taking the lead around developing mindfulness kind of programs and offerings that are helpful for them. We've had Mindful Practice Program as a program that was developed here. My husband, Mick Krasner, and his colleague, Ron Epstein, developed the Mindful Practice Program here at the university that looked at building resilience and counteracting burnout that uses the container of mindfulness, includes appreciative inquiry perspective and narrative medicine and has it as a modular kind of teaching. And they would be open to medical students, but they have like a four-day teaching program. So if medical students are open to taking some time out, those run locally. And so if they just Google mindful 
practice URMC, that'll come up and their workshops will come up and they ask, those are specifically tailored for the healthcare community. Um, and mostly people come who've had many years of practice in nursing and physicians and medical educators. But we have had residents before and we've had medical students that have come to those programs. It's a developing process and we don't in some ways do enough. And this is something that I'm interested in the next few years to see how do we build this out for medical students because the science and kind of learning around it really supports that this is one way. It's not a quick fix. It doesn't, you know, it's not, not everybody wants to learn meditation and mindfulness practice Yes, is a way of being, it is, is a way of showing up for your life, but it's cultivated through a meditation practice. So it's not that we suddenly absorb it by just hearing about it and, have, and going to a couple of talks. We actually need to build a meditation practice into our lives. And that builds the skill for, for kind of a mindful way of being. But more and more students are, are interested in it. So it, it is a conversation that I'm wanting to have. Thanks to Dr. Luck for sharing her story with us. Opening and closing music is composed by Amanda Chow. Dr. Eric Larson is my mentor and advisor. We were doing an escape room the other day and I was just so stumped. So I asked him, what should we do? And then he got all philosophical on me. There might be a door that closes, but that doesn't mean it's the end of your journey. It just means you have to look around for the next door that opens. If you have any topics you would like to hear on the podcast, please email lspodcastproject at gmail.com That's just an L and just an S no periods Thanks for listening and helping to build this community of mutual support trust and care